You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. And um, I, I've got to tell you uh, one thing that, you know, being a, this is my one joke I've got. So uh, being an Army historian, I had to subject you to PowerPoint. But I, I'm not much of a PowerPoint ranger, so bear with me here. But what I wanted to talk to you about today, what wasn't necessarily what 101 did, but why I decided to write the, the book like I did. And when I first started, researching Detachment 101, I was just overwhelmed by this story. It's a fascinating story about what so few people did in Burma and accomplished so much. Uh, by the end of the war, uh, they are credited officially with having uh, killed 5,000 Japanese and uh, maybe another 10,000. But they also supplied all the intelligence, or at least 80% of the intelligence that the Air Force used to bomb Japanese targets in Burma. Uh, by the end of the war, in North Burma, Detachment 101 owned that area, and the Japanese really had no chance whatsoever of continuing the war. And um, I, I started reading some of the memoirs, and what I found was that they really said a lot about what they did. But I, this photo in particular kind of fascinated me because this sums up Detachment 101 to me. And if you look at it, it says, in a coordinated land, air, and water, Detachment 101 Air Can Field Unit took the city. And then it mentions, okay, we have one guy here, you know, another guy, and, and five guys. And so I started thinking, okay, what is this combined aspect of 101? Because if you look at some of the other OSS elements around the globe in World War II, they don't have quite that combined nature that 101 had. And so it got me thinking about, well, what is it about 101 that's different? I have to have a, a uh, photo of Donovan here, just because he's the head of OSS. The irony of Donovan is he really has very, very little to do with Attachment 101. 
The other thing I have to subject you to is an organization chart. And uh, the only thing I want you to take away from, from this org chart, this is what OSS looked like, uh, OSS Washington. And the only thing that you really need to take away from is that its two main elements are intelligence and operations. And with a lot of OSS, this was compartmented. Detachment 101 did not do that at all. And it's one of the, it's probably the only OSS element that chose to just virtually ignore branch distinctions. So what I wanted to do is kind of go back to the beginning of 101 because when I was researching in the archives, uh, it took me three years. Uh, I went through over 2,500 boxes of material. And I knew I had a lot of, a lot of stuff, but I had to figure out some way to, to organize it. So I went back to the, the first operations, and they start with this man right here, Colonel Carl Eifler, uh, absolute bear of a man. Uh, this guy uh, in World War II weighed about 250 pounds, was over six feet, and just big. Um, I, I visited him later uh, when he was in his uh, early 90s. And to give you an example of how intelligent uh, Colonel Eifler was, he, he wanted me to take him to lunch. And it was in Salinas, California. I, I'm not from California. I didn't know where I was going. Eifler was blind. And what he did was he gave me directions by the color that the houses were painted because he had memorized them before he lost his sight. And uh, his, actually his sister uh, from the back seat said, well, let's hope no one ever repaints the houses because then we're lost. But uh, very, very nice guy. But he started Detachment 101 with 21 people. And what I find amazing about that is at the time, this is early 1942, we have no special operations capability whatsoever in the entire U.S. military or civilian agencies. These guys don't know what they're doing, and they make it up on the fly. And he did a tremendous job organizing a unit for which he didn't know the mission, he didn't know where it was going to go, and he didn't know what they were going to do. They, they did land in uh, Burma, and they got a, a mission from this gentleman, uh, Lieutenant General Joseph Stilwell. And the only order that Eifler got was to make booms in the jungle. And I don't know if... Uh, any of you all have spent time in the military, but that's not much of an order to tell you just make booms in the jungle. So Eifler had to come up with how he was going to do that. And the first thing that he was going to do was create a group called A Group. And what's interesting about these initial operations is none of these men are American. We had to borrow them from the British or recruit them out of uh, displaced personnel that had fled Burma from the Japanese. Uh, these three men are part of the, the team of A Group. This is the team leader, Jack Bernard, uh, Oscar Milton in the middle, and then uh, Pat Maddox on the end. And, and with the exception of Bernard, uh, Oscar and uh, Pat stayed with Detachment 101 throughout the entire war. This is the plane that they dropped on. It's, it's not a plane that's designed for airborne operations. They actually jumped out the back door. And they didn't have any training uh, for parachute operations other than falling off a box, and this is how you land. So they didn't have any prior jumps before they went into uh, Burma. Uh, and I don't know about you, but that would exactly instill confidence in me uh, because this is essentially what they were asking him to do, was jump out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> That's John Beamish, 
who is getting ready to jump, and you can see the look of apprehension on his face because uh, he has never done this before, and he has a camera stuck in his face taking a picture of him. This is the most successful mission that Detachment 101 had in 1943. And what they were able to do was they had a mission of blowing three bridges that is south of Michinaw because what they were trying to do was cut Japanese supplies to a Japanese air base at, at Michinaw. And they succeeded in dropping two of the bridges, but they got caught trying to do the third. And A group had to split up, and it took them several months to get back to Allied-occupied territory. Um, so for the extent of 11 men going in, they disrupted Japanese rail communications for probably a day or two at most. The second operation they launched was one called B group. And this is the leader right here. Uh, Harry Ballard. This is them uh, right before they drop. And uh, as you can see, they're, they're pretty high morale there. Again, in the airplane on the way there. And one thing I want you to notice is it's daytime. And this is because at the time, Detachment 101 did not own any aircraft. They didn't have any boats. They had no transportation assets whatsoever. So they had to rely on the US Army Air Force or the British to get their agents in. And it was a less than ideal situation because they could not control their operations. This is the escort fighter uh, for the uh, airplane. It was a C-87. And that's actually flown by uh, Colonel Allison, who later uh, led the air commandos. And here we're going to put one man out the door. And interestingly enough, this man right here is John Coughlin, uh, who was later uh, the, the OSS uh, strategic service officer for the entire Far East. And they're going out the door. We're going to send one more man out. And this is the last that Detachment 101 ever saw of B Group. What you don't see in this picture right off is a village. And they had no idea that there was a village where they were dropping these guys. And that was because, at the time, Detachment 101 really didn't know what was in occupied Burma because they didn't have uh, intelligence agents there, and they just didn't know the operational picture of what was going on. But they, they had to do something, so that's why they were dropping B Group. When the agents landed, the villagers came out, surrounded them, captured them, turned them over to the Japanese, and then the Japanese executed them within a few weeks. This is the next mission that goes in. This is the W Group. That's Charlie Morrell and John Aikman, just to give you some faces to some of these agents. The problem with W Group is that what this mission was supposed to be was one on the Arakan coast of Burma, and they were trying to cut a coastal road to help the British uh, push uh, further south in the area. And since Detachment 101 didn't have any boats of their own, they had to rely on the British. Well, the British said, there's no way that we can carry extra fuel on deck, and so we have to go in during the day, drop them off at night, and then go home that night. So that there wasn't any margin of error whatsoever because the boats just couldn't, couldn't handle the range. And here's the flotilla. 
there's Eifler talking to the uh, captain of one of the boats, and at, at this point, Eifler is, is not very happy uh, with what's going on because he has an inkling that this mission is going to fail. And he actually wrote a letter back to uh, Detachment 101 and said, if, if, if we fail, and Eifler intended to be part of this mission, if we fail, this is the reason why we need our own planes and boats. But Eifler kept pushing through with these missions because he had to do something, because Stillwell said, I need booms. This is what the coast looked like when W Group goes ashore. And as you can see from, from the rocks and the surf, it's, it's not exactly an ideal landing point for people who, you know, they didn't have any training whatsoever in amphibious operations. Uh, they had never been in a, as far as I can ascertain, have, had never been in a rubber boat, had never used an oar. And it took them four tries to get these agents ashore. By the time they got ashore, they were so late and dawn was coming that uh, the British commanders were worried that Japanese aircraft may find the, the boat and give away the mission. And so Eifler essentially went in with the team to drag the boats out himself uh, through the surf back to the boats. And in so doing, he hit his head on one of these rocks and was completely disoriented and was trying to find the, the boats in the middle of the night or in the early dawn. And the only way, only reason that he actually got out was he heard the anchor chains being pulled up off the uh, seabed because the boats had waited so long that they were getting ready to go. Uh, so Eifler made it back to the boat, but unfortunately that head wound was really more damaging than he thought, and uh, it led to him, uh, I describe in the book as, as self-medicating with alcohol and morphine, uh, but it eventually leads to his uh, dismissal from Detachment 101, and, and uh, Donovan used him in another capacity in OSS. What uh, happened to W Group is... They made it to shore, and they got to cover. Uh, Eifler shook hands with the men and said, don't be taken alive, and they weren't. Uh, but unfortunately, in their haste to get ashore, they left a battery on the beach. And the next day, this battery was discovered, and it alerted the Japanese that they were in the area. Uh, so what the Japanese Kempitai, uh, their secret police, uh, did is they basically went to all the villagers to, make, to find out who gave these agents shelter, tortured them, and then that led to the agents. Um, so the, the entire team was, was captured and uh, executed. The next one to go in was the Balls mission. Uh, this is the leader. It's uh, uh, Meli Rodriguez. And um, I've got a picture of another one here. This is uh, uh, Souk. And um, I'm giving you my uh, entire presentation here. Um, what happened to this group is they were also lost as well. Uh, when they went ashore, and this was even further south of W Group, these were all progressively south. When they went ashore, they were also discovered by villagers who weren't exactly pro-allied at this point and were rounded up and uh, eventually chased by the Japanese and, and killed. The, the one who lasted the longest was the team leader, uh, who actually died of a stomach ailment in March of 44. 
But what Detachment 101 had been doing all along is they also pushed uh, what I call shallow penetrations into North Burma. And they, they really did this as an afterthought uh, because they were trying to find any mission that they possibly could for themselves. And where Eifler was trying to, to really do the sabotage operations, they also discovered that there was a critical need for intelligence in the area. And so they, they pushed out from a, an allied outpost at the top of North Burma called Fort Hertz. It's now called Putao. But... Um, Basically, what these groups did is they gathered local intelligence on the area, uh, transmitted it back to, to allied forces, and they also started making friends with the, the local inhabitants. Uh, it's a tribe called the Kachin. And the Kachin were very, very pro-allied and loved Americans. And there, there's two reasons for this. Uh, one is that you know, they, Americans just generally got along with the Kachins and, and didn't look down on them. They, they were uh, very two cultures that, that got along very well together. The other aspect is that uh, American missionaries had entered North Burma uh, years before and had introduced baptism uh, to the area and had also given the Kachins a written language. And uh, the, the Kachins remembered this and it translated to, to goodwill for the OSS men when they came in. So what the, the OSS did, this was the first operation uh, called Forward, and um, actually led right here, uh, interesting enough, that is a uh, U.S. Navy doctor. Uh, he was actually on the USS Maryland at Pearl Harbor and wounded, and he was on his way to China when he got diverted because Detachment 101 needed a, a doctor. So instead of keeping him back at headquarters, the leadership of Detachment 101 thought, well, let's go ahead and put him inside Burma. And so you have a, a U.S. Navy surgeon who eventually led one of the most successful guerrilla operations of the war. And what I want to emphasize, too, is, uh, or again, he had no training. He did this on the fly, just by determining what worked and what didn't. What he, in his case, what he did was the, the people in this area, the Kachins, many of them had never seen a doctor. And so he provided free medical care and just got a lot of goodwill uh, from the Kachins just by providing essential services that they needed. And he started organizing <coughs> excuse me, the Kachins in uh, guerrilla groups because they were already anti-Japanese, and when the OSS came in the area and, and had the ability to provide them with arms and to organize and lead them, they were more than willing to, to do that. And so this was the, the first operation forward. The second major one is one called Knothead, and the reason why it's called Knothead is the head story goes that they were playing a, a game of baseball back at headquarters and the ball hit his head and so they called him Knothead. Uh, but that became the, the code name. And what, what he did is, is he mimicked what Forward was doing and, and providing intelligence, making friends of the area and, and learning the, not only the human terrain but also the, the landscape and how to live in the jungle, how to operate in the jungle. But he made an a important a decision, 
in which one of the first things that he did was meet with this man right here. And the gentleman's name is Zing Tugna. And he had already, Zing Tugna was a Gachin and what was highly respected in the area. And he had already started a guerrilla group on his own. Uh, he was actually working for the British at the time. But uh, Zing Tugna agreed, after meeting with Curl, agreed to work for the Americans with Knothead. And so essentially Vince Curl walked into an already existing network and he just exploited what he found there through the use of communications, medical, and ammunition. And they started organizing uh, these groups up in North Burma. And at, this, at the time that they were organizing, they, they were forces in place. There really wasn't much of an uh, operational use for them yet. That changed when Stilwell decided to uh, try and capture the key city of Michinaw, which we talked about before. And what he did was he went to the next commander of Detachment 101, a gentleman named Ray Pierce, uh, who's there on the end. And uh, Ray Pierce, a retired lieutenant general, uh, he's probably most famous for conducting the, the My Lai investigation in, in Vietnam after the war. And whereas Eifler was a, a very brash, go get him kind of guy, Pierce sat back and, and reflected on the situation and reflected on what works. And it was Pierce who started emphasizing the short-range penetrations of, of knothead and forward that we talked about. So when Stilwell comes to Pierce and tells him, I'm going to be launching a, an offensive on Michinaw, how can you help me? Pierce told his field commanders, start recruiting guerrillas because you guys are going to be helping uh, the allies when they push through. And um, not that there's any, any nepotism anywhere, but this is actually Stilwell's son. Uh, that was his uh, G2 or his intelligence officer. So what uh, Pierce did, one of the first things he did was, was put an intelligence officer in Stillwell's headquarters. Uh, this is a gentleman named Chester Chartrand, and it was his job to basically take all the intelligence that all the field groups were transmitting back to Detachment 101 and make it in a form that Stillwell could use. And so what he's doing here is he's actually plotting Japanese positions on the, the map uh, so Stillwell can better direct his forces. The next thing that Pierce did was he flew behind enemy lines uh, to his area commanders and told them face-to-face, -face, this is what's going to happen, and this is what I want you to do. And here he is at Knothead, uh, again talking with Curl, and uh, on his right is a, a very famous uh, guy with Attachment 101 named Father Stewart, uh, who was actually an Irish uh, uh, priest. And uh, he decided to go on the, the side of Detachment 101. And uh, he was a tremendous asset because he was fluent in Kachin. And where the, all this kind of boils down to is when the Allies launched their, their offensive in North Burma, Detachment 101 was already in place to basically provide intelligence on the area, guides, uh, guerrillas, and one of the great photos I found uh, of Detachment 101 during this campaign was this photo right here where you have Father Stewart 
talking with uh, Brigadier General Merrill of Merrill's Marauders uh, because Merrill's Marauders had come into the area and they were trying to bypass Japanese positions and in doing so they ran right into Knothead's headquarters and Knothead was able to provide Merrill with uh, a couple hundred guides to basically allow the, the marauders as much as possible to slip past Japanese positions to try and take Michinov by surprise, which they eventually did. And here's a, a photo of a, a Kachin soldier on the airfield at Michinov. It was taken by surprise in May uh, 1944. Uh, it was a significant Allied victory but it was one that was uh, very much overshadowed by uh, D-Day, which happened a month later. But um, Detachment 101 was able to lead the marauders past Japanese positions to take the airfield at Michinal by surprise. Unfortunately, uh, if, if you've read the book or know the campaign, uh, what happens after this is the Americans stop, and they had Chinese forces with them, and they give the Chinese the honor of, of taking Michinal itself. Well, two Chinese regiments come around Michinaw and start firing at each other, and that gives the Japanese time to, to bring reinforcements into Michinaw and solidify their positions. So we're, we're stuck in a siege of, of Michinaw for the next three months. But uh, what I find interesting about this picture is, is the caption. Uh, if you see that, 13-year-old uh, Kachin Ranger. And th that, was, that was typical. Uh, but um, you know, the, the Kachins wanted to fight, and so that there wasn't any prohibition against using uh, young soldiers such as that. And so that, this is what, what kind of got me to, to thinking about Detachment 101. And I, I swore I wouldn't do this again to you, but, but I am. But um, it got me thinking of, well, how did they accomplish this mission? Because I, I, I didn't care so much about what they did. I wanted to know how they did it, because what's the lesson that, that you take from this? And how this fell into place for me is, is I learned that they, they were so flexible because Stillwell wasn't telling them what to do, Donovan wasn't telling them what to do, so they did what worked. And they, because of that, they were so flexible that they could basically change their mission at will in order to basically reinforce that success. And that's what they did. And what they did as well is... Gradually, they started taking pieces of what I call OSS Washington, elements from, uh, that the OSS had created, and trying to work them into their organizational structure to, to see what worked best. And this is an idealized chart of what Detachment 101 looked like. It really doesn't look like this, because they, they basically ignore a lot of these uh, you know, branch distinctions. But... Um, but in so doing, they don't look like any other OSS element. And in the end, that, that's what I took away from Detachment 101, that by breaking every single rule, they become what the OSS itself says, their most, uh, most important tactical combat force. And to further confuse things, this is what they look like in theater. And... Um, yeah, they served in the China-Burma-India theater, which people called confusion beyond imagination. And I think you can kind of see why uh, a little bit. But um, in the end, too, the irony is this doesn't matter to Detachment 101 because they're operating on their own with no one telling them what to do. And so 
that, that kind of finishes what, what I wanted to say on Detachment 101 and puts me right in at uh, 30 minutes, like I was asked. And, um, but, but again, I just kind of want to reemphasize that, you know, in, in going through all the material I had on Detachment 101, I, I had to find that, that detail that was new. Uh, because if you read all the memoirs and, and put the things together, you get a great operational picture about what they're doing. But get, referring back to that original photo that I showed you with the combined elements, no one told me, well, how did they bring an Air Force into it? How did they bring a maritime element into it? And how did they generally support their operations? And so that's what OSS in Burma is about. So if anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to. Yes. Hold on, please. When did they finally start getting their own planes and, uh, the, and boats that, and whatever else the, that they needed? And that's kind of an interesting story, too, because the first plane was actually stolen from the British. Uh, what, what they did is they, they found a, it was a night, near as I can tell, it's about a 1925 era, 26 era a British Tiger Moth that uh, was at a, a British airdrome in India. And what Detachment 101 did is take a couple cartons of cigarettes and essentially bribe the, the airdrome commander. And uh, he essentially said, well, I'm just not going to guard that plane for a while. And so they got in it and flew it, flew it out. Uh, the next thing they did, and Eifler uh, fancied himself a pilot. He was never trained, but he taught himself. And so he ended up crashing a lot of Detachment 101's planes, so they had to constantly come up with new ones. And one thing he did, there was a Thai group that came through the area, was originally assigned to him, and they had two planes with them. And they couldn't get these aircraft over to China because they couldn't go over the Himalayas. They were just light aircraft. And so Eiffler took those airplanes, and those were the next ones uh, that Detachment 101 used. But uh, eventually, you know, OSS Washington agreed that, yes, they need their own Air Force. And they started sending them uh, L-1 aircraft, which are basically light aircraft that could take off on a, a short run strip or a runway. And the, the pilots, they called it the, the red-ass Air Force just because the tails on the planes were painted red. And the pilots were nothing short of amazing. They could almost land anywhere. Uh, they used the aircraft to, to take out casualties, uh, to, to bring in or take out messages, uh, and also to, to bring in supplies and take out supplies. Uh, but pretty unique in that they have their own, their own Air Force where a lot of other OSS elements don't. They actually work with the Air Force as opposed to 101, which they belong to 101. Um, and and I, I know I'm going on, but uh, they never, Detachment 101 never looked a gift plane in the mouth. And they, at one point, they even had a couple Spitfires that they found uh, that had crash-landed in Burma, and they rebuilt them. Uh, what they were going to do with the Spitfire, I, I think it was probably just for fun. But uh, yeah, it, it was on their books for at least a month. Yes? Hold on, please. What year was what year was that victory you said they caught that town? Oh, uh, Michinaw. Mm -hmm. the, they took the airfield on 17 May 44, and it finally fell, uh, I believe, 3 August 44. Uh, if you look at the cover of the, the book, if anybody has a copy, 
what that uh, painting on the cover depicts is Detachment 101 during the Michinaw campaign. Uh, because what, during the Michinaw campaign, uh, you had uh, the British force were the Chindits, the Americans were the Marauders, and then you had Chinese. The, the Chinese were essentially locked around Michinaw. The, the Japanese had them in place. The Marauders were at Michinaw too. And the, the Chindits, the British Chindits, were, were locked below at a town called Mogang. No one could move. And the only one who could move was Detachment 101. And the reason for that is they knew the people, they knew the area, and they knew the trails where the other forces did not. And what that painting depicts, Detachment 101 or elements of Detachment 101 worked their way south, and they set up essentially river blocks on the Irrawaddy River. And so any Japanese transportation that tried to use the river to get out of Michinaw or to reinforce Michinaw, Detachment 101 forces just lined up on the bank and shot everything they possibly could. Yeah, yes? Oh, sorry, I, I went. Oh. We'll get everybody. Yes. Okay. Um, hi, Troy. Uh, this to me looks a lot different than Europe. Uh, what does the rest of OSS think of Detachment 101? They, and it's interesting because I, I found a couple uh, quotes about uh, Detachment 101 when I was going through the research, and one of the the reports that I got said, you know, we love because Detachment 101 would send in monthly reports saying what they did. And in, uh, I want to say, 43, one of the reports came back to Attachment 101 and said, please keep sending Washington your reports because they, they read like novels here. You know, we'd love to hear what you guys are doing. And then I found a, another report, and I, I quoted it in one of the chapters, that you know, they think that all the guys out here at Attachment 101 have joined the Army. And so they, they weren't, there was kind of a, I won't say a love-hate relationship, but Detachment 101 was almost on its own because OSS was so focused on Europe that OSS in Asia was almost an afterthought. And Detachment 101, especially through 1944, in many cases was the last one on the list or they were kind of getting the leftovers. And China joined them in this too, that it wasn't until... Uh, really, 1945, that, that the OSS presence in, in the Far East grew. Uh, when I talk about the, the Michinaw campaign, uh, in which the you know, Detachment 101 killed thousands of Japanese, they, they did that with an average of maybe 90 Americans and, and British in the field, leading a you know, couple thousand uh, guerrillas. But by the time uh, 1945 rolls around, Detachment 101 has essentially built a division-sized guerrilla element in Burma. And normally in an unconventional warfare campaign, you have guerrillas that will lead the way, open the way for conventional forces. What happened in Burma is the guerrillas opened the way for conventional forces, and the guerrillas did such a good job that the con conventional forces left and left it to the guerrillas to finish the campaign, uh, which is just almost unheard of. Yes? Yeah. Who, whoever, I'm fine. <laughs> Uh, was the bridge over the River Kwai based on any one of the Detachment 101 forces? No, that, that would have been uh, in Detachment 404's area uh, because that was Thailand. Yes. How were the uh, men 
in the force recruited? In other words, the Americans, uh, where did they come from? Uh, as part of that, perhaps you can answer why they didn't seem to receive any training. Okay. They, and when I say don't receive any training, what I'm referring to at that point is the beginning. And the, the reason for that is if we don't have any special operations forces in being, how can we have trainers to train them? And so they were coming out of the conventional army uh, in the beginning, and they were, they were using what they had learned through the army prior to that. But when it came time to later recruiting, they, they would come through OSS channels. But what was unique about, about the Far East, when you think about OSS, you know, a lot of times they're trying to recruit people who had a language ability. And in our you know, World War II America, we had a lot of people who could speak French. We had a lot of people who could speak German. There weren't a lot that could speak Burmese. And so what Detachment 101 and some of the other, like Detachment 202 in China, they were getting really qualified people. They just didn't have that language capability. And uh, one of the kind of interesting things I found with Detachment 101 is in mid-44, uh, late 44, Pierce finally, he writes back to uh, OSS headquarters and says, hey, can you please stop sending me so many Greeks? Because uh, the OSS had recruited a lot of personnel for operations in Greece and Yugoslavia, but then they were kicked out of that area because Tito didn't want to work with the OSS anymore, and so the natural fit was send them over to Burma. And what Detachment 101 would do was most of these personnel had been trained in, in what I would call European methods. Detachment 101 set up its own school in India on the Burma border to give these new coming recruits another couple weeks of just basic instruction of this is how you live in a jungle, this is how you call an airdrop, this is how you work with the Kachin. And so they, they tried to cover that base where instruction in the United States wasn't covering that for them. Hey, Troy, the, uh, the early guys, the early ones that came out, a few of them had, were trained at uh, Camp X. Right. Was, it was by SOE, but it was all orient, oriented toward uh, at, Europe. And a, a couple were, were trained up at Camp X. And one, another interesting quote I found from that is, you know, they said, okay, we were trained up here, but then we quickly found out that all our instruction didn't apply to, to what we were doing. And uh, it's, it's another case of these guys, and I, I'm awed by their ability to do this. They were presented with a problem. No one told them what to do, and they come up with, on their own, how to tackle this, this immense problem. Joe was trained at Area, area B. Right. Yeah, yeah. Some others. Uh, yeah, Troy, um, over in China, you had Seiko. Mm -hmm. uh, running an, a guerrilla training program at Happy Valley. And I'm just wondering, was there any communication between the two, or did they emulate each other? Or There, there was some communication between the two. Uh, in fact, uh, the Navy surgeon uh, who headed forward was on his way to, to Seiko, and he was diverted. And he actually stayed on the books of uh, Seiko for the entire time. He was with Attachment 101 until he was recalled. They, they were in communication, but when Eifler arrived in theater, technically he was supposed to be under the direction of 
Admiral Miles, uh, who was the, the Seiko commander. And they, they tried to work it out, and eventually Miles told Eiffler, I am far too busy handling the Chinese. Do what you have to do. It, just let me kind of know what you're doing. But other than that, it's up to you. And so I, I never, other than that, I never found much communication between the two because the roles were really so different. Uh, they're operating in, in the jungles in North Burma where you know, Seiko's operating with the Chinese and, and the river valleys. Yes, sir. Wait. Sorry. I'm, aware of, I'm aware of two other facets similar or nearby or not nearby. One is the Burma Road, which was a highway which trucks and so forth, we could supply the Chinese. I guess that was much further north in Burma. And then the C-47s, they were supplying the Chinese by air over the Himalayas. But that's all further north. Uh, maybe the Japanese weren't in that area. They were in the area. In fact, that's the reason why Stillwell wanted to capture Michinal, because Michinal had a Japanese air base there. And, and what the gentleman's referring to we were trying to keep China in the war. That's the entire reason why Americans were in, in North Burma. And when the Japanese came into Burma, they severed the only outside lifeline for supplies that the Chinese had, which was the Burma Road. Uh, that started in Rangoon and ended in Kunming, China. And w when they took that, that road, what we decided to do is uh, almost presaging the, the Berlin airlift. We took cargo aircraft from India, flew them over the Himalayas into China. But it, w it was never a very, I, I, wouldn't, I won't say it wasn't successful, but it's very expensive to fly supplies in, especially when you have to go over or near mountains such as Everest. Um, the amount of cargo that you can carry is significantly less. And it was compounded by the Japanese having Michinal because they could base, which is a, about you know, the top of Burma, they could base fighter aircraft there to try and shoot down these cargo aircraft flying what was called the hump. And so if you take Michinal, you remove that threat, you allow them to fly a, a lower route, and you make that, that resupply effort more successful. At the same time that we're doing that, we're trying to push a new supply road called the Lido Road and build it across North Burma so we can supply China by road. And essentially, that's what Detachment 101 is doing in the entire campaign, is helping U.S. Army engineers be able to build this road through the area. Still, all the objective was to, uh, was to you know, recapture Burma and, uh, of course, obviously keep China in the war. But he wanted to train 90 Chinese divisions, and he wanted mm -hmm. to use the Burma Road to supply them. And uh, of course, in the uh, Cairo conference, uh, when uh, <clears throat> both Chenault and uh, Stillwell were, th were there, Chenault said, well, <clears throat> I can get the, uh, you know, I can drive the, Ch the Japanese out of China, just give me a few more airplanes. And, and Stillwell was, was arguing opening the Burma Road. Well, it turned out both of them were wrong, because when the Burma Road finally got finished, it would only supply about 15% of the logistical need. And uh, of course, what happened in China, the Japanese uh, initiated Ichigo and, and uh, captured all the forward bases in China. So, you know, so much for strategy. Huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
Um, after the war, you uh, mentioned that, well, part of the personnel, after Detachment 101 was disbanded, part of the personnel went down into Thailand and mm -hmm. did intelligence work. And I'm wondering um, how many of them remained after the war and became part of that agent net that was down there that eventually even Donovan, you know, made use of? And that I can't answer for you. Um, the people I know who were with Detachment 101 uh, who went down to Thailand uh, stayed until about 1946. Uh, and th they were with an operation called Operation Zipper. Uh, but they were two different kinds. Some of them were X-2 personnel, which was the OSS counterintelligence, and other ones were SO, or Special Operations personnel. And th the reason why they were using them specifically in Thailand was because when Detachment 101 disbands in July of 45, you almost have three tiers of people. You have people who have been there since 42 and 43, and they had had enough time in theater, and most of them were medically unfit to continue uh, because they had had multiple bouts of malaria, dysentery, and they send them back to the U.S. to recover. You had a, another group that had been there not, not necessarily too long, but they were trained operators, whether they were operational group guys or special operations guys or, or secret intelligence guys, and they send them to China because China at this point is, is ramping up its capability. And with the war in Europe over at this time too, all, the, all OSS assets are, are flowing to China. Then you have a, a group of people who, they're not quite the, the 43 crowd and they're not quite the, the latecomers, but they've got experience. And let's figure out how we can use them. And so they send them down to Detachment 404 to try and build up the, a little bit of their networks. Uh, but at, at this time, too, it was fairly clear that the war was coming to an end. And uh, as far as the OSS was concerned, the, the emphasis goes to China. And so if you have trained operators, send them to China, because that's where they can be used. Yes? Why did the Japanese shoot at each other? The, the Chinese? I saw it. Could, could you repeat the question? Je so you asked why the Chinese shot at each other in, uh, in Michinaw. Are they the communists on one side? No, no, they, they, were, they were all nationalist uh, troops, but they mistook each other for Japanese. And so w when the two regiments start firing, the Japanese are very happy <laughs> to, to sit back because the, the Chinese essentially destroyed themselves uh, trying to, to capture Michinaw and uh, just allowed the, the Japanese to bring in all their garrisons from the surrounding towns. The, the closest estimates I have on how many Japanese troops were in Michinaw when Detachment 101 and the Marauders and the Chinese took the airfield was about 300. Well, within three days, they had nearly 3,000 in, in Michinaw and essentially started digging trenches, and it, it was uh, siege warfare at that point. Uh, how has this been viewed by the special ops community over time? Is this seen as an anomaly, or are lessons learned pulled De out of it? Detachment 101? Yeah. Huh. That, that's a fun question. Um, it's, okay, how do I answer this without getting into trouble? Um, being a historian down at, uh, with you know, special operations and at Fort Bragg, what I find 
is that the OSS European model, or I won't even call it model, OSS in Europe is emphasized, Jedburgh teams. And they look at, the, at that as their functional predecessor. OSS in Asia is not even thought of. And the, I guess the, the, how I have arrived at maybe why that's the case is it's simply a story that not a lot of people know. And it, it's not, you know, I'm not going to be cliche and say it's the secret untold story. I kind of personally hate that. But uh, it, it's just a, after the war, we were so focused on the Cold War and on Europe that we lose focus of the Far East. And if you look at the formation of special forces in 1952, and this is one thing that we talk about in the office all the time, there are five people brought in that are going to be the main proponents of forming special forces. Two of them had been guerrilla leaders in the Philippines. One was Detachment 101 veteran who had also served with the Marauders, and another one was a Marauder. They bring in one token European OSS man named Aaron Bank, and he also served in the Far East. But when they write the initial FM for how to organize special warfare and how to organize special warfare units, it's all Asian experience that they use. And so to, to answer your question, and it really doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's just how the way it is, they take their legacy from the European side, even though their entire background and formation is the Asian side. Any more questions? So what do you think the enduring lessons are of Det 101? I, I think that uh, Detachment 101 is the closest predecessor that you had in World War II to a, a modern-day Special Forces unit. Absolutely. Um, we do something in the 60s called a Special Action Force, or a SAF, in which a Special Forces group will take civil affairs, psychological operations, uh, intelligence, engineers, and mold them all into one element. That's what Detachment 101 had. So it seems like a great time to thank Troy Sequetti for a wonderful talk. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.